Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got good, bad, and crazy news for you today. So, Jim, let's dive into our double-fisted good. We also have a double-fisted crazy, so brace yourself for that one. But uh, Democrats are starting to admit that this is not going to be their cycle. Now, of course, the only way to make sure that they're right about that is for conservatives, Republicans, and everybody who's fed up with this administration to stay active, stay engaged, stay energized, and to get out there and and vote and and be active in in getting people elected this year. But uh, two people who we probably ought to pay attention to, at least to some extent, Politico with the story of Colorado Democratic Senator Michael Bennett, uh, he is up for re-election again. I don't know how serious uh, the Republican challenge is going to be. Uh, according to the political article, a lot of that will be determined by which Republican wins the primary. But Bennett is saying, quote, when you're in the same party as the president, that's going to be a tough cycle. He described voters as, quote, mad at everybody about inflation, COVID, and the expiration of his signature child tax credits. He also says Colorado's status as a blue state, quote, is an incorrect perception among people in Washington. He says Colorado remains a swing state. It also says Bennett's warnings are not just local. Uh, He's uh, telling his whole party to buckle in for a rough ride. Quote, I had a very tough race in 2010. That was a very tough cycle. I chaired the DSCC in 2014. That was a really tough cycle. In 2016, it turned out to be another tough cycle. This is going to be another one of those. Meanwhile, Doug Sosnick, a former pollster for Bill Clinton, letting people know it gets late pretty early out there. He says, if past elections are any indicator, we are heading into the final stage of the election period when voters are beginning to lock in their views of the state of the country and their expectations for the future. It's during this period, not in the final days of an election, that the public settles in on how they're going to vote. He points out that Trump's uh, approval rating of 39% in February 2018, Obama's 41% in June 2014, 45% in June 2010, and George W. Bush's 38% approval in March 2006 were exactly what their job approval ratings were on Election Day of those years where their parties got crushed in the midterm. So, uh, Jim, how encouraged should we be here? Pretty encouraged, and longtime listeners will notice that for quite a while now, our good martini is usually some indicator of a red wave or red tsunami. I think the comments from Bennett are, what's useful about that is that sometimes there's already a ton of evidence pointing to this, the state of the economy, the president's approval rating, the generic ballot numbers, all that kind of stuff. But I think comments like this from Bennett kind of create, I don't wanna say a self-fulfilling prophecy, but if you are a professional Democrat, a campaign consultant, a grassroots activist, you know it's gonna be a lousy year. And it's much tougher to motivate yourself when you know it's going to be a lousy year. You you know the headwinds are against you. You know that you know when you go door knocking this uh, this summer and this fall, people are going to be in a bad mood. People are going to probably it's going to be very tough to say. Don't you feel like the Democrats in Congress are doing a great job? Maybe they'll be able to say, "Oh, as bad as things are, you don't want Republicans holding the House of Representatives or Republicans having the Senate." But all in all, you know, between gas prices, food prices, we talked yesterday about the risk of rolling blackouts and other energy problems. There's an utterly insecure border, and it's been insecure for the better part of a year. Uh, Biden just looks, you know, senile and out of it in just about every speech. The idea that he's going to turn this around by going and campaigning coast to coast is very tough to buy. 
Kamala Harris is not a particularly effective communicator. You know, it's just very tough. Maybe Democrats will say, okay, Roe versus Wade being overturned is going to energize our grassroots and maybe bring some suburban women uh, in our direction. I, I don't think that's a, a, an ironclad lock. And if the projections of, you know, a national average of $6 a gallon gas, $7 a gallon gas, I mean, if it gets up to that level, it's going to be eight bucks a gallon in California. You look at that, I just, I don't see abortion being an issue that people are going to be the driving issue when gas is, you know, six, seven, eight bucks a gallon. It just, it, it just defies, you know, expectation. Oh, by the way, today's morning jolt, not yet posted as of this recording, but uh, probably up by the time you hear this, looks at the housing market. And Kevin Hassett wrote a piece yesterday pointing out basically the, the housing bubble is going to burst. His argument is that it's gone up so much over the past few years that even when the bubble bursts, most homeowners are going to still end up ahead of the game. I looked at the numbers. The housing market has the average sales price of a house in the United States in the last seven quarters, meaning it's not quite a full two years. Greg, it's gone up 35 percent. Wow. That's a that is much faster than the run up to the 2008 housing bubble bursting uh, towards the tail end of the Bush administration. So, no, some of this was, look, it was a pandemic. People were having to spend time at home. People are more likely to want to move into a new home. People were more likely to want to put on an expansion or you know spruce up their home and stuff like that. So on the one hand, this is kind of a natural side effect of the pandemic ending and people wanting to re- you know, devote resources in other directions. Uh, and for what it's worth, the Federal Reserve says it won't be as bad as 2008. Greg, can you think of a lower bar to clear than not as bad as 2000? So you just add all this up, you know, potential recession, high gas prices, high energy prices, runaway inflation. Um, you know, uh, stock market's been crashing lately. God knows what it'll be like in November and possibly a housing bubble burst. This is just about as bad in economic conditions you could run as probably since like November 2008. And so that's just a formula for the incumbents to just get demolished uh, and, you know, Greg, uh, it just couldn't happen to a better party. <laughs> well, they've they've certainly done nothing to uh, to alleviate this situation. In a lot of ways, their policies have built up the problem. Inflation, we've talked about a lot. Uh, the market's clearly not uh, liking the Biden policies. And uh, it's almost like uh, we learned nothing from the housing crisis of 2008, Jim. Almost like that. <laughs> <laughs> almost like that. Some of us learn and we warn others and no one listens to us. Amazing. But yeah, post-pandemic real estate has been insane and it's absolutely unsustainable. But anyway, uh, something that is sustainable, a good oral care routine. And that's where Quip toothbrushes come in. Look, good health starts with good habits and Quip toothbrushes make it easy by delivering all the oral care essentials that you need to care for your mouth and the mouths of everyone in your family. The Quip electric toothbrush is loved by more than 7 million mouths. And Greg, I have a feeling the rest of the body feels pretty good about them, too. (laughs) It has timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses to guide a dentist-recommended two-minute clean. It's got a lightweight and sleek design for both adults and kids. No wires, no bulky charger to weigh you down. It's got a multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter in your bathroom. And it's got reusable handles with a range of sleek metal hues, including the best-selling all black and all pink, as well as bright plastic colors sure to make a pop in your bathroom counter. Yeah, absolutely right. They've also got the refillable floss, so don't miss out on that. They've got the anti-cavity toothpaste available in mint or watermelon. Uh, they've got everything you need for that 
excellent oral care routine to establish that with you and your kids. Uh, we got those uh, pulsating toothbrushes for our kids. They absolutely love them. We know they're brushing uh, for two minutes, uh, and it's it's just a great way uh, to build up those habits. So if you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you'll get your first refill for free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash martini. It's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash martini. Quip is the Good Habits Company. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And we were celebrating not that long ago. Feels like it was just last week, probably because it was. When Nina Jankowitz resigned as head of the Disinformation Governance Board, the board itself was put on pause. We were celebrating both of those pieces of information and thinking maybe, just maybe, the DHS will be smart enough to strangle this thing and just uh, be done with it. But no, not only is it going to continue, they've actually brought in a Republican as a key advisor. Some people on social media are saying he's going to run it. I haven't seen that anywhere official yet. But uh, over at the Free Beacon, the Biden administration is calling in backup to bail out the Disinformation Governance Board. DHS Secretary uh, Alejandro Mayorkas has tapped former DHS Secretary Michael Chertoff to advise the board. Uh, and it also points out that Chertoff was among those uh, experts, quote unquote, who late in 2020 joined together to say that the Hunter Biden laptop story was not real and had all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. So that's the kind of person with the instincts you want running the disinformation board. Nonetheless, Jim, uh, bad news that uh, that a Bush administration guy is in this position. Worst news, this board's not going anywhere. Yeah. So here's the thing, Mike. The first question is, what was, and I really like um, either Mayorkas or someone else at DHS, perhaps Chertoff, to lay out in great detail under tough questioning from a skeptical source, whether it's Congress or a media person, what this disinformation governance board is going to do. And oh, by the way, if I were running it, the first thing I would do is change the name because it sounds like it's in charge of governing the U.S. government's disinformation. <laughs> um, and then the next question is, is that the U.S. State Department has its own agency that tracks foreign disinformation put out by foreign sources. And we don't have the same First Amendment rights for that. And even then, I don't think they have no actual ability to enforce law against other people. But if, say, you know, Russian... Uh, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg or something is trying to spread some rumor. This State Department office is somebody who could do it. I don't really worry too much about the free speech rights of foreigners. I do worry about the free speech rights of Americans. And it really gave off this vibe from Jankowitz that her idea of how this was going to work was that the Department of Homeland Security would identify something that they decided was disinformation. You know, Russian bots are saying this sort of thing. And then if you as an American were saying the same thing, then DHS would be able to reach out to Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, whatever, Instagram, whatever social media or whatever platform is doing that say, well, that's Russian disinformation. You have to take that down. And, you know, Facebook or whatever would then promptly do that. Or they put some sort of warning label. Jankowitz was very big on the idea of experts being able to come in and correct what you said. None of which feels consistent with the First Amendment of the, of the Constitution at all. Is Chert, I, now, the other thing I thought about was when we talked about this before was that Jankowitz, because of her show tune partisanship, was just about the worst person in the world to put in charge of this board. She has resigned. She's now doing the Oh Poor Me victim tour around friendly media venues. 
somebody like Chertoff at least is a responsible grown-up. And if you're going to have a board like this, that is the kind of person you want to have. Now, the comment about Hunter Biden's laptop is not reassuring, and I think that is likely the case. Greg, he is uh, 68 going on 69. I, he's currently, I guess he's still at the D.C. law firm, um, still doing security consulting and stuff like that. So he's still in the game, so to speak, but you kind of wonder how much he's keeping up with these sorts of things like Hunter Biden's laptop. Or whether he's got some aide who tells him, oh, everybody else is everybody else in the intelligence and security community is signing this letter. You want to sign it, too? And he says, sure. You know, that, that's that seems like a likely scenario, which is not reassuring for somebody in charge of this. No, that's but if there's going to be a disinformation governance board. What's it going to track? What's it going to look at? And when it finds something that it decides is disinformation, first of all, do other people have the right to appeal that? Is this some sort of independent, you know, is, is there going to be another branch of government that will concur that it is disinformation? Actually, you know, whatever policies they come out with, somebody's going to sue no matter what. We kind of know that part. Um, and just kind of a general sense of what should the role of the government be when somebody's putting something out that someone in the government says is disinformation? I don't know about you, Greg. I think the simple solution is just go out and put, put out the accurate information. <laughs> Say, you know, uh, for years now, we've been dealing with the rumors in South, Central America that the U.S. is giving out permisos permits that allow your child to enter the country legally. Uh, human traffickers and human smugglers and coyotes like to spread these kinds of rumors and it gets people to decide to shell out the money to get smuggled across the border and things like that. And this is what, you know, th if you're going to have a DHS role in anything, that would make sense. Although again, this whole effort still feels duplicative of what is being currently done over at the U.S. State Department. The other nagging question, so early on, I had this thing, this feeling when you look at Jankowitz and the silliness and the, um, she did a report on European disinformation and the, and the best thing the bulwark ever wrote, uh, basically tore it apart saying she got everything wrong. Um, this looked like make work. This looked like we're going to form a group, they're going to write a report, and then they're going to, you know, th thanks a lot, thanks for your service, and nobody was going to read the report. The presence of somebody like Chertoff suggests that this is still, not only is this still existing, this is a real deal. The DHS wants to do something about this. I think it was uh, Glenn Greenwald, who I'm not usually in the position of quoting favorably, but he pointed out that the new term for censorship is content moderation. And the, uh, by the way, whatever you think of uh, what's being said on the Internet on any given day, it is not the job of the U.S. government to step in and play a role of content moderation. And so far, it appears DHS is still very interested in exploring something along those lines. Bingo. That's exactly right. It's not the government's job to do that. So, yeah, Chertoff was the DHS secretary in Bush's second term. So based on last week's uh, flowchart, Jim, I guess that makes him the C team. Is that, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> We're getting pretty well into the alphabet here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I've also read that he was a big fan of the uh, airport nudie scanners. So um, not happy about that. So, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's, uh, I mean, there were no major terrorist attacks on U.S. soil in those four years that I recall. So that's that's certainly a feather in his cap. But uh, I feel like he and Michael Hayden, whatever they did in the Bush administration, have gotten too partisan uh, compared to what role they should be playing in our national discourse. And by the way, it's not just uh, Chertoff who's going to be advising this thing. Uh, Jamie Gorelick, uh is going is going to uh, yeah, uh, great. Yeah, be a well, here's here. a good, we know there'll be some sort of barriers. We know there'll be some sort of <laughs> Gorlick wall separating. Why is it they don't share the stuff they need to share, but they're going to share the stuff they don't, we don't want them to share? It's <laughs> Why do these people never go away? That's my thing. I mean, we were we were griping about Jamie Gorelick 25 years ago, uh, and certainly after 9/11. All right.
Well, let's talk about something uh, better than all of that, because uh, this hasn't been around for 25 years. This is brand new. It's the blowout sale on my slippers from MyPillow.com. I love the my slippers. My favorite thing from MyPillow. I wear them around the house. They're so comfortable. They're usually $139.98, but now you can save $90 with this blowout pricing. You'll pay just $49.98 with our promo code of Martini. Greg, 25 years? It took two years just to develop this exclusive four-tier cushioning system. Layer one, the MyPillow patented fill. Layer two, the comfort memory foam, which helps prevent fatigue. Layer three, the patented impact gel. And layer four, the indoor-outdoor sole, which you can wear anywhere you want all day long. These slippers are made with quality leather suede. They're available in a variety of styles, colors, and sizes. They're machine washable, and they have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. So go to MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104 for the My Slippers at only $49.95. An amazing deal. While you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the buy one, get one free extravaganza on bed sheets, MyPillows, and more. Visit MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104 today for the most comfortable slippers you will ever own and get Mike's book for free. MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And um, today is another primary day. It's Tuesday. Uh, I just saw Chiron on one of the cable channels that five states are voting today. I was aware of four. Uh, the one that will get the most attention is Georgia, where what was supposed to be a bruising Republican primary for governor uh, is looking to be pretty much a romp at this point. Brian Kemp needs to get to 50 percent. And according to the recent polls, he's going to get that easily over David Perdue. Uh, Stacey Abrams is running on a post for governor, which is probably a good thing for her because she talked about her state being the worst place to live just a couple of days before the primary. We'll also get a Republican nominee or more likely a runoff for U.S. Senate in Alabama, where Richard Shelby is retiring. We'll see in Arkansas if John Bozeman can get to the 50% threshold or faces a runoff, and we'll also have a bunch of runoffs in Texas. But, Jim, you would think by today's primary day we would know who won primaries from last week. Not always the case. Pennsylvania's Republican Senate primary is still undecided, and now it's getting ugly because we've got lawsuits happening on the Republican side with the party actually opposing one of the candidates in court. So you know this is going really, really well. So David McCormick is slightly behind Dr. Oz. It's a little over 1,000 votes uh, with uh, you know both of them well over 400,000 votes. So it's very, very tight. But here's the report from Hot Air. On Monday afternoon, McCormick filed a lawsuit to force Pennsylvania election officials to count absentee and mail-in ballots, even if the outer envelope does not have a date handwritten on it, along with the voter's signature as Pennsylvania's election code requires. McCormick is citing a law that uh, such an error or omission should not be uh, grounds for disqualifying a ballot if it's not material in uh saying that the vote was properly cast. And the RNC is challenging that point, saying that uh, election laws in Pennsylvania are very clear. That needs to be filled in. And if it's not, the vote should not count. Meanwhile, uh, John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor, the Democrat, is waiting for a uh, Republican opponent uh, and his heart's waiting to see if it's going to take its next beat. Uh, the New York Times 
is uh, talking about how serious this was. Apparently, Fetterman, in his uh, stroke just a, a couple days before the primary, uh, required the use of a defibrillator. And so medical specialists are telling the Times that sort of uh, treatment would only make sense if he has a different condition that puts him at risk of sudden death, like cardiomyopathy, which is a weakened heart muscle. Such a heart condition may have caused the blood clot uh, for which uh, the stroke, of course, uh, came. Uh, this uh, person that they quote in the story, Dr. Wan, says that Fetterman, quote, is at risk for sudden cardiac death, and for someone on the campaign trail, that might raise concerns. Yes. Yes, it would. So, Jim, uh, this primary is a total mess, and so is the general election, it appears. Yeah, my first thought... Greg, is on when Stacey Abrams says Georgia is the worst state in the country to live. I don't know about you, Greg. I blame the person she thinks won the gubernatorial election four years ago. <laughs> no one to blame but yourself, Governor Abrams. Um, <laughs> by the way, you know, actually, you know, before we jump into the, the Pennsylvania races, it's observation. So Stacey Abrams was a state lawmaker, right? State member of the state legislature, mm -hmm. which means she's never represented any place bigger than one state legislative district. And the attitude amongst Democrats is that she is this phenomenal political talent destined for stardom. Remember the, you know, she posed in a superhero outfit and all that stuff. And she's made her guest appearance as president of the galaxy on Star Trek and all kinds of stuff. I'm just kind of nose, like she didn't win in 2018, which was a really good year for Democrats. It was close. 50,000 votes is closer than Democrats come most of the time. Uh, but no, she did not win. And there's an interesting question of how is she going to do in a you know worse environment for Democrats? Uh, then you think back to things like the kindergarten picture um, and you just kind of add up. Well, is she really this great political talent? that everyone thinks she is or or did she kind of just happen to get lucky in a good democratic year four years ago and now she's going because I, I think she's actually got a lot riding on this election i think if she loses this one i think her star will start to fade and people will start saying like you know she could run for senate someday but like you know what 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 will change in statewide elections in georgia that didn't happen in the last two and they keep having these kinds of, you know, you know, you're going to see that picture of her sitting with the kindergartners a million times between now and Election Day. She's not, you know, she's trailing in most of the polls. Uh, Kemp looks like a juggernaut so far. So just kind of keep that in mind that maybe this is the slow end to the rising star of Stacey Abrams. On to Pennsylvania. Uh, look, I am generally skeptical. I, I think the election is in this country are actually run fairly well. There are exceptions. There are glaring exceptions. Uh, I have my suspicions about uh, Al Franken's very narrow victory in the Minnesota Senate race where they kept finding votes and stuff like that. Um, but by and large, the elections are run very well. But when you do have a circumstance, you know, occasionally you're going to have a really close election. When you can't get the result of the election in a week, that makes people suspicious. People think that the longer it takes to have a somebody declare the winner, the more room there is for somebody to either throw out ballots or to find fake ballots or something like that. Ideal. And look, you can't help it when, when it's a very close race. But there was something where like it wasn't Allegheny County or one of the election offices was going to be closed until the end of the week after the election. <laughs> yeah. I was like, did you guys know the election was this week? Did you guys you, know, you picked a hell of a time for the to go on vacation? Or something like that. <laughs> I don't always get the feeling that everybody who works in these election offices recognizes that in this era of you know suspicion and paranoia and all that stuff, the best thing you can do is come out with clear, verifiable results as quickly as possible. And when it takes, is there going to be disputes about this? Yes. And I, I do think 
that if you don't, yeah, ideally when you fill out an absentee ballot or something like that, yeah, you should fill out the date. Um, if you don't fill out the date and everything else is filled out right, I don't know how I feel about throwing out that ballot because you made a, a dumb brain fart error and you know forgot to write the date on the, the form you're filling out. I hate to have somebody not have their vote count because they made that kind of a small mental error. On the other hand, I do believe you as a voter have an obligation and a responsibility to fill out, you know, to fill out the forms properly. So that's going to get tied into a big, ugly fight. Um, it is not helpful, though, to be a week later and we don't have a winner. And then on for Fetterman, I wrote about this bit in today's Morning Jolt. Um, first of all, before we get any further, I hope John Fetterman lives to be 100. Um, nobody wants to see anybody going through serious health ailments. And hopefully this is all going to pass very quickly and he's going to be fine. But boy, oh boy, Greg, you are correct. That was a very, that was not the tone you might have suspected from the New York Times. Um, and it really goes through and makes you sound like uh, the campaign is not playing it straight about what happened to him, that their the situation could be considerably worse than they're willing to say. And just the last detail, and, and you know, for those who've seen photos of me or videos of me, I know I am the last guy in the world who should ever give anybody else grief about their weight. But I guess as recently as 2017, Fetterman was 418 pounds. He's always been a really tall guy, but he was a huge guy. Now, the great news is he's lost a lot of weight. I think like 150 pounds or something like that. So he's now in the 270 range or something like that. And I, you know, I know how hard it is to lose weight and good for him. But if you have been that obese, uh, you imagine the risk of heart disease, the high, uh, high blood pressure, uh, potentially diabetes. Uh, you know, there are a whole bunch of health problems that come along when you crack 400 pounds. And, you know, clearly he's in much better shape now. But you kind of wonder, is some of what he experienced recently a reflection of some sort of, you know, considerable serious cardiovascular problem? that he had because of being really, really heavy in life. Again, I hope the guy's fine. I hope he makes a full recovery. I'm not rooting for him in the Senate race, but uh, I don't want to see the guy keel over. Clearly, the people around him are very concerned. You also have to wonder, though, is the campaign schedule of a Senate candidate, which usually involves long hours, lots of interacting with people, lots of traveling. It can be draining for people who are in good health. Is this what's best for this guy in these kinds of circumstances after he's had what appears to be a very serious uh, uh, heart issue and, and, you know, potential stroke and all that stuff. So um, it's too it's, you know, I don't think Democrats are going to remove him from the ballot. I don't know that stuff, but it really does seem like there are legitimate questions to be asked here. And hopefully they make a decision based on what is in John Fetterman's best health in the long term. Not what helps Demo what gives Democrats the best chance of winning the Senate race this year, because as important as Senate races are, it's not worth dying over for people. You just had to retire this year, didn't you, Pat Toomey? Look at all this chaos we got going now. If you'd run for another term, I feel like it would have been a little uh, quieter up there in Pennsylvania. But uh, we will see. We will see. That's going to be a crazy race in multiple ways all the way to the finish line. We'll see what happens in today's primaries. We'll probably have results in these states before we know what happened in the Pennsylvania primary, too. But uh Jim, uh, have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Uh, thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Uh, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Launch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Tuesday and join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Democrats are angry. 
Hunter Biden's laptop is still under scrutiny. Yes, it is. And the left is hoping hoping to legalize abortions nationwide. I'm Byron York from The Byron York Show. Download and subscribe to my daily podcast to hear all the news of the day. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.